0: So to understand and be able to turn off the subconscious processes within your mind to allow your mind to flourish, I think is job number one for every scientist on the planet. And if you can get into that place of meta-awareness to where you understand what is coming together, there are only two components that I talk about in uh, Mind Hacking Happiness. If you learn about those two components that create every emotional response that you have, You can start to train your brain to turn off your emotional responses and your emotional processing to be able to allow your cognitive processing to flourish at a level that you never thought was possible
1: that was sean webb author and engineer and we actually asked him to join the podcast today to talk about refreshing yourself to talk about meditation but this episode actually went a whole lot deeper than that and and kind of deeper than I even anticipated it um, he talked a lot about how your mind works and how to become unconsciously competent in terms of the way that you're reacting to things that are happening throughout your day and I was I was just blown away by this conversation I love talking to Sean I think we could have talked to him for at least two hours on this topic w- what were your some of the things that you took away from the episode Christine
2: well, one was agreeing with you that I was blown away too. It was so much fun. And I really appreciated him talking about meditation and putting in a lot of the science behind why it works and what is physically, neurologically happening because of it. Um, and what stuck with me really, with if I choose one message, is just how strange it is that this is not a fully normalized practice, the way that exercising your body is. And, you know, everybody knows that we should exercise the muscles in our body and take care of our organs, but he really kind of drove home that your brain is an organ. It's it's maybe the most important one for academics. And and why is it that these are sort of practices that are not fully incorporated in in just having a brain?
1: Yeah. I mean, we talked about this as exercise for the brain, but I almost like to think of it as stretching for the brain and thinking about just the care that you have to do for your muscles after you do a hard workout because all those out, all those folks out there that are in academia they 're working out their brain constantly, constantly, and what I know about hard exercise is that if you don 't also stretch your muscles after you 're eventually going to break down and i think meditation is a key practice for how to kind of stretch out your mind expand your awareness and really help yourself recover from those periods where you're doing that intense work
2: yeah and and kind of thinking about it i like the way you took that analogy thinking about it that it's not just an absence of using your brain it's not just turn it off binge watch something it's it's a practice an intentional practice of of kind of um, training your subconscious, training all the parts of your mind to, to do everything that they can for you and tap into your uh, your inner genius.
1: Yeah, I think we've said enough here, Christine, and I think we can start this episode. Enjoy this one with Sean Webb. We're welcoming to the show today, Sean Webb, author and engineer. And Sean, we invited you on the show today to talk a little bit about meditation and I wanted to ask you, because I'm a little bit of a nerd, and I've read about one and a half of your books so far, and I I know your story behind how you came to meditation and what you were seeking through that, but I, I wanted our audience to hear that story directly from you. So maybe we can talk about that. Okay, sure. Well, my history
0: with meditation and introspection, period, came from a history of getting really lucky, really. You know, I, um, I spent some time in the military and got out and used the J.I. Bill to go to college and was pretty high tech throughout those years of my life and was lucky enough to get hired on at one of the most prestigious supercomputing companies in the world at that time, even before I graduated college. And so my career path kind of took me up through this upper echelon pretty quickly of, High-paying jobs and monetary success and professional success and things like that, and I'd accumulated all the things that society had told me that I needed to be happy. Right, house plus uh, good relationships. I wasn't married at the time, but you know, solid relationships plus uh, you know all the trappings of of wealth and boat and cars and you know all that fun stuff. And realized that I wasn't really happy, and so I had to take a step back and say, okay, what is it that I missed? That is the puzzle piece that I don't have yet to attain this higher level of happiness that I've kind of been attaining or wanting to attain. And so then I started to look within to say, okay, it was something not, you know, quite aligned within me. And I started to read a lot of books about, you know, religion and world religions and comparative religions. And then I ran into this book on D.T. Suzuki's introduction to Zen, which introduced me to the idea of meditations. Like I didn't really dive into Zen. But I was introduced to the idea that there are these group of people who, after this thing called enlightenment, where they run into a, like an immediate understanding of everything in the universe, supposedly, they have an amazing life of unconditional happiness after that point. And so I started to explore meditation and to try to figure out what, what it was all about, and to figure out what benefits could come from my personal exploration of it.
2: That's an amazing thing to aspire to. So a life of unconditional happiness, I can see why you went down the path of figuring out more and applying your skills to write about it. And I think it's also extremely relevant to what you described to our audience of academics and people starting up research careers where, you know, a lot of times... In order to be in a position where you're starting up a research group, you have had a similar trajectory of some sort, right? Uh, putting in your time, paying in, and then having the all the stars align, aligning the stars yourself, whatever – in order to be able to have what should be complete success. Okay, great. I'm in this awesome position now. And my mind is expected to be on and going and going in a thousand directions and juggling many different variables, a large percentage of which are invisible ones that I'm figuring out, you know, through context clues as I go. And so I feel like academics are particularly uh, well positioned to, benefit well from something that is kind of a zeitgeist moment right now, which is an understanding of meditation. I mean, if you look on different apps that you can download for your phone, meditation ones rise to the top. People are are really curious about understanding what it can do for them and how they can do it. And um, do you want to maybe speak to how and why you think that meditation is having a zeitgeist moment right now? And and what are the reasons behind this awareness bubbling up throughout society?
0: Sure. You know, I mean, the mind is your number one tool for happiness. Is something that I've discovered over the last uh, couple of decades. And, you know, it's one of the most plastic organs within your body as well, right? It is the organ that is most designed to change in form and function depending on how you use it. And so a lot of people are simply waking up to that fact that you can use your mind to change your gray matter, and studies have you know, proven this out dozens of times, hundreds of times at this point, that you know, meditation has been studied even with control groups and things like that, and they've done brain scans to show gray matter increases and decreases in certain areas of the brain that are pro-social, beneficial for um, cognitive application, for you know like they just for the the scientists in the group would love to to know about the fact that 15 minutes of meditation will re, will double your resistance to biases immediately following the meditation which is really cool if you want to go into a a study or or some type of you know discipline where you need to remove your biases before figuring out what the results of your you know science is going to be uh, sit down and meditate for fifteen minutes, right? I think it's the interest is because you know you can literally improve the function of your brain with how you intentionally um use your awareness, and I think people are just starting to understand like how amazing that is because our brain is you know of course the the main function that creates our mind and our mind creates our whole existence. It creates the quality of our existence. It creates the quality of our relationships. It creates the quality of our science. It creates the quality of our discovery and the better and more well-tuned that organ is, the better our outcomes are across the board in life in general, not just in, you know, science and the things that we do, but everything that we do. And so I think everybody's starting to like, wow. Wow. Uh, I'm really interested in maybe how to supercharge my brain at this point, because the science is showing that, you know, meditation is one of those amazing tools to do so.
1: Yeah. I think that the first objection, I'm thinking of people objecting, right? And I think the first objection, somebody from our audience, maybe the most common one would be, I don't have time for this. I'm busy. I'm, I'm running around. I need to take care of all these different things. What would you say, and maybe you've worked with people just like this, maybe you have a story where someone said, I don't have time for this, I'd rather not do it.
0: You know, that's a big argument that a lot of people do have, and even... You know speaking personally, there are times in my life where I've fallen off the wagon where you know I used to meditate a lot, twenty minutes a day, minimum up to an hour a day, and then there have been times where three or four months where I've fallen off the wagon and say "I just don't have time to to do that right now, and then I find that because of the plastic changes that occur in my brain, <laughs> my life gets a little more hectic over time, which is kind of you know counterintuitive, but it kind of makes sense if you if you think about it. You know, first of all, you know, there's a lot of skeptics that say, you know, what is this meditation thing all about and is it does it really work and the science behind it isn't really awesome and you know, and those are really valid points to address because you know, it's not like you can have a double blind uh, placebo controlled study where you know, you have somebody that doesn't know whether or not they're getting the medicine because if you're not meditating as a controlled control group, it's pretty obvious that you're not meditating. And and so there's going to be some kind of placebo effect that happens in the actual group that's meditating. But, you know, at the same time, it's like you know, a lot of the people that I've run into that say, you know, I don't have time or, you know, I'm not really sure about the science. I always ask them, well, are you meditating? And their answer is always pretty much, no, you know, I'm not meditating because of whatever biases that they're bringing into their, um, you know, mindset. And so they don't understand the potential benefits within their own life. And, you know, it's a, it's really easy to say, you know, I don't have time. You know, it's my life is too hectic, too out of control. I just don't have enough time window to set aside 20 to 60 minutes a day to sit down and try to control my attention or whatever it is. But ironically, if you can get over that hurdle, the science shows that, you know, when you reduce the reactivity of your default mode network, where, you know, 47% of our day is controlled by this thing called the default mode network, which is highly correlated. Emory University showed that, you know, when your default mode network is firing or when your wandering mind is firing, you're 20% less happy in a day. And that is, you know, testable through blood tests and through brain scans and through, you know, self-reporting psychological study. But it's pretty conclusive science at this point. And so if you can get by the fact that your brain is a little too hectic or your schedule is a little too hectic or you don't have enough time to meditate and you start meditating, it's amazing how many cycles actually open up for you to be more efficient during the time that you do have for the rest of the day and you get more done and then that opens up even more time to have a higher level of happiness, have a higher level of efficacy. I mean, you know, the studies are pretty conclusive regarding, you know, meditation at this point that, you know, you have increased memory, um, you know, increased immune system response so that you get sick less so often so you're going to have more hours where you're not out on the on the couch trying to kill the flu, you know, it's like if you look past the I don't have time, then you might be really surprised at the results.
2: Wow, that's um in, incredibly compelling. And I think I love that you're basing it in a lot of studies you know, especially in our STEM obsessed culture, and also all of us, pretty much who are are part of Team Helium community, are, are really steeped in scientific method and engineering, and you know, controlling and and collecting data so you know if something's real. Even though you know, experiential knowledge of real life is also its own type of data, which I, I think is important. So I'll use myself in, as as an example here because. So I'm a person who completely believes I'm, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid so much. I'll drink it all. I believe it's true that it would bring me benefit. And I also believe that I don't have time, but I believe that I'm wrong in that belief. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of primed for this. But I think that another barrier, once you get past the idea that, okay, this could add value, it could buy me more time in terms of efficiency than, than I think I'm losing by doing this activity. But another barrier is just ignorance of the practical nuts and bolts of what do I do. So in fact, this week I had an acupuncture appointment and my acupuncturist wrote me on her prescription pad, meditate two minutes a day, two <laughs> minutes, that's it. And so she said, just start and you got to do it and, and this will help you. And so if if you have somebody like me that you're talking to, who's in it conceptually and brand new, and their mind is racing so much that, you know, my experience of starting to meditate is that in the end of two minutes, I have had almost a panic attack by the to-do list that flooded through my brain. <laughs> and, and, um, and uh, you know, it's a cycle of just saying, drop it, drop that thought, drop that thought. But could you kind of walk people like me or anybody else who might be listening through some practical steps of where to start and what to do?
0: Yeah, meditation isn't really hard, but it's the hardest thing in the world, right? It's because the problem is, you know, you're dealing with a a, a plastic organ that is designed to Um, defend self and keep you alive. It's our organ of survival, right? And so its pattern is to always bring up things in our awareness that could be a threat to self. Like, oh my gosh, am I prepared for this meeting tomorrow? Is ultimately an extension of, oh, is that a hose or is that a snake on the ground? Right? It is a, you know, is this person a threat? Is this idea a threat? Is this headline a threat? Is this, um, whatever it is that's going on? A threat? Is that big noise a threat over there? And that's the function of the limbic system. It's the you know portion of the brain that's right above the brain stem. it's the most primitive brain. It's the you know a lot of people can call it our reptile brain, but basically that's the brain that is highly reactive and it and it will seize all other brain activity if it wants attention. And that's what creates our negative emotions and shuts down our prefrontal cortex so we can't think about how to get out of problems, which you know is great 150 years ago. If the bear walks out of the woods or we do see a snake next to us, we don't need a lot of energy. our prefrontal cortex to get us out of that issue we just need a lot of energy in our legs to run but in today's realm where we have spreadsheets and we have results of studies and we have other things we need to think about to think our way out of our problems it's not a super effective system to work with and so basically meditation is trying to overcome the patterns of, you know, always throwing things up in front of you and it's controlling your attention and it's a a big doorway into meta awareness and meta awareness is a, a psychologically real thing that they've identified. That's a function of the attention centers of the mind where you take your mind and you turn your mind back in on itself to find out what your mind is doing. And then that gives you a lot of control about what your mind is doing at that moment. For instance, like, and everybody's familiar with meta-awareness, the last time you caught yourself in a daydream, you were in that daydream with Brad Pitt driving you around in the Ferrari or whatever it was, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm in a daydream, I got to get back to work, whatever it is. Well, that's that moment of meta-awareness where you take your mind and turn it back in and find out what your mind is doing, and then you change what your mind is doing. Well, you can do that intentionally, and it's the most power, empowering function of your human mind to say, okay, we're not going to waste some cycles on that. Um, we're going to focus our awareness and focus our attention on the things that we need to be doing to be more effective. And so meditation is just that ability to train your mind to get over the distractions that it throws up constantly. And a lot of these distractions are things that can shut down your thinking brain if they're emotionally based, like you don't like how a colleague uh, is treating you or said something in a meeting or a staff meeting or whatever it is those things can actually inhibit your ability to get your work done. And so when you train your attention and you watch your mind, you're dumping yourself into a meta-awareness state that allows you control over your mind, which then will allow you control in those moments where you need control the most. So if you start with, let's say, attention on your breath, this is the easiest meditation you can do where you sit in a chair or a comfortable position and you focus nothing on um, anything except what it feels like to take a breath. And you can do this as simply as you know, one 15-second breath, nice slow breath of your body, and then that's meditation if you're focusing on you know, how the breath feels as it passes through your nose or how it feels that your diaphragm is going in and out, your attention is on your body and you're focusing your attention. And this has very specific effects on your interior singular cortex where your attention center is kind of the traffic cop of what's going on um, and your ACC is then saying, okay, let's ignore all the other inputs for a moment. That builds plasticity over time. It's going to be really tough to do for folks who are brand new to it. But if you can do it for one breath or two breaths or 10 breaths and just count the breaths and just, you know, focus on counting until you lose count and then you're like, oh, crap, I lost count. What what number am I on? And I'm thinking about lunch tomorrow and all this other stuff. It's like, (laughs) you know, if you keep going back to it, then that builds that plasticity. Just like, you know, you practice shooting a basketball or trying to hit a baseball or you try to do crossword puzzles better, you get better at it over time. Your brain and your subconscious will help you do this over time as you do it more and more.
1: If you're out there in our audience and you're looking for a faculty position, but you're feeling overwhelmed and stressed by the whole process, we've actually taken some of the best lessons from this podcast and from our own personal experience and put it into a six-week email course where you get one email a week for six weeks with some tasks that you can do to set yourself up to have success in your search for a faculty position. This course can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash FPP course. Again, if you're searching for a faculty position, we have a free course for you. That is at teamhelium.co slash FPP C-O-U-R-S-E. Thanks, and back to the show.
2: That's such a useful kind of analogy, talking about just treating it like a muscle and treating it like a skill and, uh, figuring out that this is a tool in your toolbox. Um, and I find it interesting too, because I can think of other directions where, you know, actually some of my primary research work is how to apply metacognitive processes to teams to help teams have metacognition about their process. I do it, at home when I'm helping my seven-year-old remember that I just want him to put his shoes on <laughs> and just really just focus in on that one thing <laughs> and all the other cycles not a good use of your attention right now <laughs> well you know his prefrontal <laughs> cortex isn't
0: fully formed yet it's just starting I we've just gone through the transition from seven to nine and it's amazing it's like if you don't have your attention with the seven-year-old every few seconds it's like they're off to the iPad or whatever. It's
2: It's so true. And you can see it being truly involuntary, right? Where it's he's not rebellious and does not want shoes. He's just like, (laughs) I just see all these other things that are much more interesting for me to do. Exactly. If I could just kind of port my view of him getting shoes on in the morning onto my own brain and and try to correct it in the same way because I still love him. I'm just like, but you do need your shoes on, you know? Right. And so, so we you, are leaving. <laughs>
0: yes. The van is rolling out of the driveway and you're not in it yet. This is a problem.
2: <laughs> I can tell you feel me on this one. And it's like, so if you can kind of port that same, like you you do love that person and, and kind of having that view of yourself, like, okay, I'm not saying that I'm a failure at thinking or, you know, these negative things where you can be unkind to yourself and get in your own way. But at the same time, you know, I think for academics, especially you, you have a very tightened up mental muscle and you're using this tool in one way all the time, go, go, go high gear. And so I feel like maybe it's even more incredibly important for this group of people to use that muscle in another way um, and in a kind way.
0: Yeah, hugely. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more and I'll tell you why. Because your mental processes, your cognitive processes happen after your emotional processes have died down and are quieted, right? Because they always get priority. Your limbic system will always hijack. You know, it's like the the famous uh, amygdala hijack, right? Where people have an anger or a fear or something that shuts down their thinking brain. Well, that can happen in shades of gray at lower levels as well. You don't have to be in extreme panic for your entire prefrontal cortex to shut down and not be able to think about something. You know where you know your PFC is at 100 and then goes to zero. There are states where your PFC might be at 80 when it could be at 90 or 100 because of something that's been nagging you. That type of thing. Emotional intelligence. The Harvard Business Review called emotional intelligence the essential ingredient to success. And this is a group of folks who are very science. Minded, who never make definitive statements, who say, Well, you know, this study suggests this or this result leans us in this direction. On the cover of their, I think, 2014 magazine, they finally said, Emotional intelligence is the essential ingredient to success. It is twice as effective to have high emotional intelligence in your job as it is to be smart and to know your job. So to understand and be able to turn off the subpro- subconscious processes within your mind to allow your mind to flourish. I think is job number one for every scientist on the planet. And if you can get into that place of meta-awareness to where you understand what is coming together, there are only two components that I talk about in uh, Mind Hacking Happiness. If you learn about those two components that create every emotional response that you have, you can start to train your brain to turn off your emotional responses and your emotional processing to be able to allow your cognitive processing to flourish at a level that you never thought was possible which is how I got into this whole thing in the first place. Like after meditating for a while, I had this, there was this click in my brain where there, and now I understand it as a physiological change. There was like a glutamatergic storm and, you know, some synapses got burned out. And, you know, the the way that my mind actually functioned changed like from one day to the next. And then, you know, I had to do a couple of decades worth of study to figure out what had happened within my own brain. Well, you know, I thought I was pretty intelligent before, the level of intelligence that opened up after that was like unfathomable. It's it's, it still blows my mind today at how easy some things that used to be really challenging for me are now like second nature almost in my mind. And, you know, a lot of people are going to be coming at that from a very familiar point of view. Like, you know, they're, they're going to be, In that seat where they're like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I figured out that people are, you know, spend years on and it takes me 15 minutes to understand. You don't even understand how much that can improve when you start to get your subconscious processing out of the way and allow your cognitive processing to, you know, without governance uh, flow, limitless. It's, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. You talk about in your, I think it's, I don't know if it's volume one or volume two, but you talk about this concept of unconscious competence right? This adult learning model. And I think a lot of people in our audience, they have a very specific subject that they've studied for many, many years that they they've experienced that unconscious competence with. But I think what people in the audience can realize is that they can do the same thing with their emotions with their meta awareness. And, and, and a lot of times people struggle sometimes, right? So I'm thinking of a specific example, like they sit down to write a grant or write a paper, they're distracted. they there's something that's bothering them emotionally. If you're practicing, if you're doing these types of practices for years, and I'm, I'm not there yet, but I think the goal is to get unconsciously competent at just being able to put yourself back into a state where you're like oh yeah this is what i'm doing this is this is what i'm focusing on i mean this is a very practical consideration but i think there's so many dings whirs beeps notifications students knocking on your door that this is a skill that you have to cultivate because otherwise uh, the world is going to take you down a, dev- a different alleyway that's probably not very productive
0: right and you know the studies prove out that you can train your mind to react at a subconscious level like one of the the, the coolest things, it was, you know, N equals one. But there was a, a, a French Buddhist monk, uh, Matthieu Ricard, who was literally measured as the happiest man on the planet. That's his claim to fame. If you want to Google him, you can read a little bit more about him. But basically, they put him in a brain fMRI scan to show that he had negated his startle reflex, where, you know, they told him that they were going to put him in the study for something else. And they put headphones on him and then they surprised him with loud noises and his amygdala and his limbic system didn't react, period, because he had simply meditated his startle reflex down to nothing. And so, um, you know, that's that's a portion of the brain you normally can't control unless you have worked on it for a while and it becomes an automatic response. And he successfully did that. And he also had the most uh, left leaning on his prefrontal cortex uh, on his default mode processing, which is the area highly correlated with, you know, happiness and uh, compassion, and altruism, things like that. And, uh, his measurements, I mean, it was, it wasn't like a self-reporting thing. It was a, here's his brain scan and it proves out the, you know, what he was doing.
1: So I know you talk about that, uh, Matthew Ricard a lot in you, in your books, He's. I've actually. I haven't read anything about him, uh, but I'm. I'm kind of fascinated. One because my wife is French, so I'm like, oh, I should know about this guy. I don't know why I don't know anything about this guy, but I feel like sometimes people put the the people that. Oh, that's for somebody else. Like, it's not part of my own. Like you talk about in your books, it's part not part of my self map to be like these types of people because they've make a made a choice. So I guess what would you say about people that kind of like say, Oh, that's, that's not going to be something for me. Uh, because I think part of the point you're making in the book is that this actually can be for everyone and that this can really help. Let's say in our case, like our audience, like the entire scientific community, engineering community can really benefit if there were more people that had a very close connection with, you know, and were able to enter meta awareness more readily. We would get a lot more done. We would be a lot more happy. What would you say to that?
0: Well, first, I'd want to honor the skeptics and say they're partially right that, you know, what some humans can do, other humans might not be able to do, such as if you put me in LeBron James jersey, I'm not going to be able to dunk a basketball and I'm not going to be able to to play against the NBA's finest. You know, partially because I haven't trained, but partially because there's going to be a limitation of my physical abilities to do so, and I believe that that also correlates into you know what we can do with our minds sometimes, and that's obvious uh, from a physiological standpoint. However, the other side of that argument is a paraphrase of I think Henry Ford said it: "If you think you can, or you think you can't, you're right." And that sets your expectation of what your limitations are. And then you want to live up to those limitations from a physiological standpoint in your brain that, you know, a defensive self mechanism. If you put an idea on as a piece of your sense of self, or you say, I can't, your brain is designed to defend that. Every portion of your brain is designed to defend self. And so whatever self idea that you put on, in your mind, positive or negative, your brain's going to want to create a fulfilling prophecy, so to speak, to create that reality and defend the fact that you're right. Because the problem is with your, defend- your, your idea of self, at any point that something on your self-map is wrong, that could be a life-ending miscalculation for your brain. Because if you think you can make the jump of six feet over the crevice to get away from the bear and you can't make the jump of six feet, then you're going to fall down and you're going to die. And so your brain must create this sense of self that is the definition of you that is correct all the time because if it's not, then you could end your existence based on one of those mis- miscalculations. And so if you put on a negative idea associated with self, your brain's going to want to fulfill it because it doesn't want to have to rewrite the self map because you know there are only two things in your entire mind that are always comparing each other. To create hundred percent of your emotions, and one is the perception of whatever's going on in your in your mind w- in, with an appraisal process of whether that's good and bad, including everything that's happening around you and all your senses, and the other thing is this sense of self. does this apply to me? Does this apply to my existence as it you know I define it here on earth, and at any point that one of these things needs to change, and this is our huge resistance to change in general any time that the brain needs to change something on the sense of self map. Then all of a sudden, not only is the old familiar list gone, and now we have to start comparing every one of our perceptions with a brand new list. And oh my gosh, why are we changing? You no, know, I know I don't really want to lose that weight because then I'm gonna have a, a change in my sense of self. And you know, I don't really want to go to the gym because then I'm gonna have a change in my sense of self. And we resist change. Well, the other side of that equation is that if you change self, everything that you've checked for past risks and now has to be rechecked for the brand new list. And so there's a huge resistance in the brain on changing your sense of self period it was just a physiological outcome
2: um i love that you use lebron james as a an an example because what strikes me as is that you, you what you're saying is you know people are starting to turn on to this idea that this is this is really strength training for your brain and it would be sort of an equivalent of saying oh i'm not a you know, a Buddhist monk in France. So meditation is not for me. It would be like saying, if you're not an Olympian, don't even get a Fitbit. Don't go for a walk. You know, it's like, that's insane. So, you know, there's some level of this type of training that's like, take the sandbags off your mind. You can go faster, farther than you think with a little bit of effort. And, and it's just a fitness, it's a fitness habit that it applies to an organ that we don't we often erroneously fully separate from our embodied self, right? So it's pulling yourself back into your body, having that part of your life, and then also realizing that it it is part of your body and it can be improved intentionally with this new toolbox that you're kind of bringing to us. Completely, completely. And after
0: you work with it for a while, and see, that's what the amazing part is, is once you work with your mind and once you work with your awareness for a while and you start to understand the the science really behind what you're doing. It's really cool because, you know, the nervous system and mass is just a big communications network and a communications network typically wants to have some type of response back that says, okay, message received, and we're going to do something with your message. Well, that's exactly what your emotional processing system does. 100% of the time it sends messages up to the prefrontal cortex and the medial prefrontal cortex and the right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex to an assessment. And it says, okay, I understand, and they they showed this with Matt Lieberman in the UCLA uh, studies, the name attainment studies that spawned dozens of copycat studies that approved the results. When you put just a simple understanding of a word associated with an emotional response, that starts to shut off your limbic system because the limbic system gets the message that, okay, the message that I sent forward was received and they're doing something with it so we can stop sending it. Well, that's called emotional resolution. Well, when you start to understand the actual process within your mind that creates all of your emotions in the first place, from the two variables that create them, that's like the name attainment effect on steroids. And then from that, the plasticity starts to build and you start to emotionally regulate from a subconscious process. And if you want to talk about supercharging your brain for cognitive processing and intellectual prowess, start doing that. You'll be amazed at what happens.
1: I think that is a perfect way to end. I think people are going to want to pause the podcast <laughs> and, uh, go, go off and, and find a uh, meditation practice. Uh, this is awesome. Thank you so much, Sean. Uh, I want to, I know that you, well, obviously I've mentioned your books, uh, you've got mind hacking happiness volume one and volume two that you've, you've self-published. Those are available on Amazon, right? And I don't know if you want to mention your podcast projects. Well,
0: sure. Um, yeah, you know, and by the way, that you know, we talked about a lot about meditation today. In uh, in the Mind Hacking Happiness Red Book, there's an additional level of dumping you into a meta awareness with some tools and things that are beyond meditation that you can do, which are independent of and additive to meditation. So, if you're interested in that kind of stuff, read the Red Book. If you're interested in uh, expanding consciousness and things like that, that's the that's the Blue Book. The podcast that we're doing, there's one that I'm doing that's basically just kind of post-book support that people are like, give me more. So I'm doing this Mind Hacking Happiness podcast thing that we just fired up. And uh, it turns out that a couple of Navy SEALs who are reporting that uh, the Red Book is the best mind training manual on the planet after going through the mind SEAL training gym, uh, up in, um, Virginia, they're like, well, let's do a podcast and talk about uh, consciousness expansion and taking control of your mind and yada, yada, yada. So we're going to do a two seals and a walrus podcast, <laughs> which is as a warning, very raw. <laughs> I mean, these guys are big, you know, excessively trained warriors and you can imagine the vocabulary that they want to use normally, but, uh, at least it's going to be funny. And, uh, we're going to try to bring mind control to the masses through, you know, general interest.
1: I'm in. (laughs) Just can't listen to that one with the kids in the car. (laughs) 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 No, this is going to be an adult only podcast. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. This was great.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. It was great being with you guys. A couple more things here. Team Helium episode 27 the resources and the notes and the transcript for this episode can be found at www.teamhelium.co episode 27. There you can actually find clickable links to different parts of the episode. So if you want to go back and listen to a very specific part of the episode, you can go to that webpage and there's links there with timestamps to really refresh your memory about the different parts. So if you want to go back and just listen to a particular part, that's a great resource for you. We have a special announcement for you here at the end of this episode. We are launching a course in the fall of 2019 for those who don't want to feel isolated, stressed, or overwhelmed looking for faculty positions. We've had such a great response to our email course that we're actually launching a paid course for people searching for faculty positions. That course will match you with a mastermind group and give you weekly coaching on the things that you need to know to get to your faculty position if you want to sign up for that course you can find that at www.teamhelium.co slash one that is the number one you can say hello to us on twitter at helium Podcasts, or you can go and give a review on itunes if you really love the show we'd love to hear your feedback on these episodes we also love to hear your ideas for any future episodes of helium podcast as usual the episode Music was provided by mblakemusic.com. And the episode was edited by Zach Hendren, produced by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and Matt Hotze. One last note the month of July with Team Helium and Helium Podcast is all about teaching. So we have three episodes that we have recorded for you. I'm excited about those episodes episode 29, 30, and 31 will be for you as an early career researcher, whether or not you're a postdoc that's trying to land your first faculty position and understand the kinds of things you need to do in terms of your teaching part of your CV, or if you're a faculty member just starting out and you want to know how to build a brand new course, or if you're a faculty member that's reconsidering some of the courses that you've already built and you want to try to iterate on them, and improve on them, these three episodes are for you. So look out for the first
2: of those three episodes to be released on July 2nd.